Thrill Me. This show is part of the Thrill Me Podcast Network. Experience more on Facebook and YouTube. Hey, Sean, you were young once, like 17? Yeah, at, at one point, yeah. And you're like in your 30s now? Allegedly. Allegedly, I'm an adult now. Interesting. Did you have problems when you were growing up? I, to this day, my friend, they never stop. Oh, so you still have problems now as a grown-up? Oh, all the time. Well, that's good, Sean, because this is the podcast for you, where we talk about those kinds of things, yeah. from growing up to being an adult. Yeah, and everything in between. This is the podcast for everyone about anything. It's like an everything bagel, but oh. in podcasting. Exactly. And you can find us all over the place. You sure can. Instagram and Facebook, Guess This Is Growing Up Pod, or you can send us an email at guessthisisgrowinguppod at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we're diving into a little bit of true crime podcasting type stuff because we have a, a I mean, more so than Joe and I easily, we could say an expert on this sort of thing joining us today. And we have a soulful blend of indie pop from Bad Actor. So for those of you that don't know, like Sean, uh, Kate, I'm sure, has heard this story before, but I'm a criminal justice major. However, I don't know S about F uh, when it comes to anything <laughs> criminal justice anymore. So thankfully, we have our wonderful guest here on the show today. It's Kate. Hi, guys. How's it going? Awesome. Going great. I, I wanted to steal it from Sean because he always does the thing. So I just jump True. right into it. I wanted to take it from him. So <laughs> thanks true. for being on the show today. Um oh to be here yeah i mean listen like we we know so much about uh forensics and uh, criminal justice over here on guesses growing up pod oh so, yeah we're please we know so much uh funnily enough the brief time that i did attend college i went for um uh, criminal psychology oh that's so, a good one that was my backup if the, if the science side of things didn't work out well, it's okay because that one didn't it didn't work out for me and now I do radio. So it's a weird segue, but I got there. It works. <laughs> it works. Yeah, I I just total totally uh, data dumped everything that I learned to graduate college with a bachelor's in criminal justice. Um because obviously I don't do that uh anymore. So but again, uh welcome to the show, Kate. Uh so if you could in, enlighten us and also enlighten the audience, what is your official title? So my official title is forensic specialist. So I primarily respond out to crime scenes and take pictures, collect evidence, analyze it, that kind of thing. Okay. So I got, I got a, a hot question right off the bat. Can you, can you, as a, as a forensics, uh, technology science expert across the board, uh, can you watch, shows like CSI or Dexter and not get uh, upset because things are wrong, probably? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to be the no. answer. I knew it. <laughs> so that's um, how a lot of people get interested in this field. That's how I started. I was watching the original CSI Las Vegas at probably 12 years old. So I would say too young to be watching it, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Not necessarily the it happens, place. but it it fostered my interest in the field like it does a lot of people. And now uh, it just doesn't happen. The closest I can come to uh, work related TV shows was always Criminal Minds because there's not a lot of physical science behind it. Mm -hmm. Sure. OK. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But do you so I guess to kind of piggyback off that same question, do you find that a lot on in TVs and or movies dealing with forensics is actually pretty wrong or not really close to what you do? Um, a lot of what's done on TV is sped up to fit the time frame of a you know fifty minute show, sure. forty five minute show or whatnot. Sure. So it it 
brings out a lot of misconceptions about how quickly we can get results for things. That's what I um, something I was wondering was because it, it, that's I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that people think you take a piece of DNA and you send it to the lab and in an hour they have an answer for you. Yeah, no, it can take months to get uh, DNA information back, depending on the lab it goes to, if you're going to private or government funded and that kind of stuff. So it really does not see as immediate results as people think. Same goes for fingerprints. The little side-by-side fingerprint comparison thing doesn't move as quickly as they make it look on TV. So you're saying that a 15-minute segment will not happen in real life. Is that what you're telling me? No, no, absolutely not. There's actually, there's actually a term I learned about in college called the CSI effect. It's such a problem (laughs) within our field that there's a like bold and underlined in your textbook vocabulary term for it. And it's the impact that TV shows have on a jury and whether or not they expect uh, forensic evidence in every case that they might sit on because there may not be forensic evidence at a case. And a lot of people don't seem to realize that. Oh, wow. I guess I never really thought about that. Yeah. I guess if I spent a lot of time just watching TV and like I get called for jury duty, like, oh, sweet. I'm going to see all this, uh, all these photographs and all this cool, (laughs) cool stuff and video evidence and all this blood. That's going to be great. Yeah. It's going to be great. (laughs) I'm sitting on a, a, commercial burglary case where the guy's identified strictly off of security video, but there's no DNA evidence because he was wearing gloves and there's no fingerprints because he was wearing gloves. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, we, we can't control that. If somebody uh, doesn't leave behind the type of evidence that we can collect, then we might not be able to do that. So when you, you, when I actually just as a, to piggyback on that, I saw an interview with a detective a long time ago, and he was talking about something very similar to what you're saying. And he, he but he didn't call it the CSI effect or, or whatever it was. He, I think this might have been before that time. Um, he spoke about uh, the number of hours the average juror watches of soap operas each week. <laughs> oh my goodness, I can't imagine. And he like same idea was that it kind of gives people unrealistic expectations that they want short stories, they want concise stories, they want it fed to them on a plate. Um, they yep. don't want to have to really piece things together or make a judgment. Uh, um, but well, we only have fifty minutes, so well, I mean, we gotta <laughs> snap. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I Plus can tell you right now. I can tell you right now. Okay, the pedophile <laughs> did it. It was the evil twin. The, the, wait, hold on. Anytime we make a declarative statement, that's going to happen. But um, when you talked about why you sometimes they don't leave things behind for us to collect, when you walk into a crime scene for the first time, is that, I mean, do do you have a system for what you look for? Or do you just start with whatever you see first? Um, So the biggest, uh, I guess, tenet of forensic investigation when it comes to responding to a crime scene is using what we call a systematic approach. So you document your location, you show up, you make sure that there's one point of entry and exit that doesn't disturb any evidence. And then you start your photographs from there. And then you want to make sure that you approach the collection standpoint of things um, in a way that won't contaminate other evidence. So that usually means collecting um, any type of DNA or biological evidence before you start doing processing techniques like looking for fingerprints with black powder. Because if you apply powder to a place that you might want to collect DNA from, you run the risk of contaminating that DNA sample. Okay, that makes, you know, when you said it, a systematic approach, I'm thinking to myself, duh, why wouldn't they use a systematic approach? Yeah, (laughs) try to approach crime scenes the same way every time so that we can trust our process and know that we didn't mess anything up along the way. Um, And then there are always challenges that come with that. Um, You know, you have an outside scene and it's about to thunderstorm and you... Got to do your best to work fast to get the evidence. It's more important to get the evidence. than. I didn't even think about that. Like something yeah. like the weather changing on an outside scene. Yeah. So, so we deal with challenges like that and, and we just have to roll with the punches and do the best we can. Um, 
but try to maintain within that systematic approach, you know? Allow, allow me to clarify. When I said, duh, of course they'd use a systematic approach. I meant duh to myself. <laughs> because <laughs> I was like, why would I not think they would use a systematic approach? It's, it's almost like women all really like, I think I'll take this today. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that has uh, evolved over time because there's going to be at least one thing that we talk about today that whew, they dropped the ball on some evidence. Oh, uh, but we'll we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. My question, Kate, is: Do you feel when you when you get a call, do you get like some type of adrenaline rush for oh, it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially I'm on day shift now. So my calls aren't quite as thrilling as they used to be. When <laughs> that, I was that, is, that is adventurous at uh, 1.30 PM on a, on a Wednesday. Yeah. Usually I can anticipate a, uh, a welfare check usually doesn't turn out well for me on, on weekdays. Cause that's when like, Hey, I haven't seen my neighbor in two weeks. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Um, and then especially in the summertime, um, or I get a lot of like burglary calls, people who whose houses or businesses got broken into overnight. So it's not exactly the same thrill as listening to the radio and hearing shots fired. Um, but either way, as soon as you get that call, your heart rate jumps and you start running through the list of, okay, well, what can I anticipate? How much information do I have? Um, what kind of collection materials am I gonna need? Um, is the suspect at large? Do I need to be wearing my safety equipment? That kind of thing. So to that same, I guess on the other end of that, does it take you a minute to come down from that? When you're, you get a call or say you're on your shift or whatever, and things are happening, do you, after, is it, is it easy or difficult for you to kind of leave that, leave that on the scene, if you will, and, and come down from that adrenaline if you're going, once you're going home? It can be hard. Um, there's a certain level of like dissociation that you got to do to be able to get through some of the harder scenes. Sure. Um, but from a physical standpoint, you're still kind of running on adrenaline after a long scene because after you clear the scene, you got to bring all of that evidence back and maybe you've got bloody clothes, you've got to dry down and evidence you have to take care of and secure before you can work on it on your next shift. And there's a lot of cleanup afterwards to make sure everything is settled in and in a good spot before you can go home. Um, that being said, I, on some of my longer nights in the old city I used to work in, if I had an overnight scene, I would drive home and make a pit stop for donuts from our favorite spot. And <laughs> then I would have breakfast with my husband before I went to bed. <laughs> So that's the way to like, all right, I'm here. I've got food. I can enjoy yeah. a donut and decompress and then I can go to sleep. I get that for sure. You get a little, uh, get a little high point, uh, on the yep. opposite side of, uh, adrenaline, but try to, exactly. try, to try to bring that down a little bit, come back to reality. Uh, yeah, definitely. That makes a certain amount of sense. I, I can't even fathom to myself, uh, how, you walk into some of these scenes, like you said, somebody, I mean, even something as, hey, I haven't seen my neighbor in two weeks. It's not exactly a gangland shootout, but still you walk in there and that's not going to be something that you're going to forget about in 20 minutes. Uh, no, definitely not. Yeah, there's there's a handful that stick in my brain. Hoarder houses. The, the My job is smelly and gross sometimes. <laughs> I, had, I had a colleague just last week who um, they had to cut the side out of a trailer to remove a decedent because uh, the hoarding situation was that bad. Now I, I've got to ask this question because we, you brought up like CSI and all those other shows is one of the biggest misconceptions you think that people have about your job other than like how quickly things happen is I should say like how involved in the case CSI or forensics are. Because Absolutely. on those shows, good Lord, they show up there the minute <laughs> the crime is over and then they interrogate people, then they arrest yeah. people. And you're like, I don't think that's how it works. That is absolutely not how it works. So when you're watching CSI and you see uh, Gil Grissom and Sarah like standing over a body, she's in her little pencil skirt and heels and they're uh, poking around at stuff. And then in the background, you see people in hazmat suits or like with a camera around their neck, taking pictures and that kind of thing. I'm more yeah. the person in the background. 
Right. So, <laughs> so CSI likes to combine um, the responsibilities of a detective and a crime scene specialist. That's that's not how it works in the localities that I've worked at. Right. That's not to say there isn't some other city or town somewhere in the U.S. that that is how it works. But well, you're you're very you're very kind to not in not in my experience. <laughs> a little uh, a little Hollywooded up, if you will. No yeah, yeah, else. just a little sensationalized. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I would st- I would watch a show if it was more of what was actually going on, I'd, I'd be interested in that. Let's see what's actually happening. A little slow burn. If you, yeah. <laughs> well, it's the slowest of burns because there are a lot of times that um, we don't even find out what the turnout of our case was after we've testified. Oh, wow. Like so you, I, you just kind of, you do your thing and then that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like start to finish, we go and testify. And then it's like, okay, well, did that kid who broke into that house get any time? Are they going to juvie? Like what's going on? <laughs> so, and I, that's got to be bothersome too, because sometimes I'm sure there's sometimes in a case where you feel like you have not enough evidence uh, to, to really nail the person, but you're still hoping maybe it happened or vice versa. Maybe you have like an orgy of evidence and you're, you know, the way the system works, you're still not sure. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang on to the term orgy of evidence. That's, that's what welcome. I was, that's you're what welcome. I was gonna say too. Like, it's interesting, interesting way to put that, but I'm here for it. Thank yeah. you. I, I do what I can. I'll be back next week. Joe, take it away. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, uh, there's some difficulty for me letting go of that concept because we do what we can to get the investigators and um, where we're at the Commonwealth or uh, like attorneys, the information they need to be able to prosecute from that point on, like it's out of our hands. Mm. So you kind of have to know when to step back and understand that you did your job to the best of your abilities and whether or not that helped catch the bad guy doesn't rest solely on the inve- like the forensic specialist's Uh-oh. shoulders. It's, right. it's a whole team. A lot of uh, other moving parts in a case, whatever the case is, not necessarily just the forensics part of it. Exactly. So I think this is a good spot since we talked about uh, evidence and your systematic approach to collecting evidence. One case that I wanted to talk about that we, we thought would be f- well, not necessarily fun, but anyway, there's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, not, I'd like to clarify. Fun. I did not yeah. think anything would be fun. Yeah, not fun, not actual fun, <laughs> but uh, fun to hear Kate's uh, side of things being that she is uh, a forensics specialist. And right. that case that I'm speaking of with evidence being not tampered with, but potentially... Said, I think you said, I think the term you used before was mishandled. Yeah, mishandled. So in the killing of Jean Benet Ramsey back in 1996, from my research, uh, on December 26, 1996, when uh, Patsy Ramsey discovered that her daughter was missing and she found a two and a half page handwritten ransom note. Uh, so in my research, I found that the house like essentially there was visitors and family and even the minister came through the house and there was surfaces cleaned and like essentially potentially destroying evidence uh on this case do you have uh what are your thoughts on on that kate does that say i about had a heart attack when i was reading through the details of this case because once I started doing this job, I stopped really watching true crime documentaries and that kind of right. stuff. So right. this like, stuff what was- were they doing? <laughs> what were they yeah. doing? Yeah. Or it just gets frustrating seeing how things get mishandled. Um, so one of the things that it, it's a basic tenet of any criminal investigation is creating your crime scene boundaries and knowing how far out to extend them. And I actually helped, um, teach forensics to the police academy um, where I work. And my tip to them is always, however big you think you've made the scene, double it. Because in addition to like double it, triple it, you never know how far out your evidence can extend. And it's better to have that space under your control than it is to try and 
take it away from the public or whoever it may be. So they only cordoned off John Benet Ramsey's bedroom when they should have cordoned off the whole house. The family was still living there while the investigation was ongoing. Like you said, surfaces were being cleaned. People were coming by to visit. So the types of evidence that could have been lost from that in terms of um, they could have looked for footwear impressions throughout the house. Um, I saw something about the um, contents of her stomach at the autopsy included pineapple. And there was a bowl full of pineapple found on the counter that had mm-hmm. been like cleaned away or something. Um, so there was a lot of opportunities for evidence that could have been missed. And I mean, just uh, again, I guess when we were talking about it earlier, I mean, that was in 1996. So I imagine uh, something like this, somebody must have been like, all right, we need to make sure and make sure our protocols are a lot better because we, somebody had to know they, they messed this up, right? I mean, how could you I know? I would hope so. I would certainly hope so. I mean, there was still, it, forensics is an ever-changing and ever-evolving field. So I by the 90s, when this occurred, DNA evidence was still a pretty new thing and it wasn't really widely used. Um, so they were really looking for visible physical evidence is sure. what I what I would have anticipated from that. And to shrink that crime scene down to just her bedroom, oof, that one hurt. <laughs> I don't even think as a I don't even think you have to be a professional to realize that like like Joe said he was just reading through it and he was like what in the hell is going on exactly um, it, it's 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 just I can't I can't blame you for not being in, like into true crime anymore as a result of of your job now because things like this will drive you insane and like you said in the nineties there was especially the mid nineties they were still kind of some places were still getting on board with DNA evidence yeah um, and I did. I don't know why some places were so slow to accept DNA evidence as evidence. <laughs> there, not necessarily DNA specifically, but there's a lot of uh, older cops on the road who very firmly believe that the investigative aspect is going to be the make or break. And there, there are a lot of times it is, but it's uh, slow going for them to recognize the value of forensic evidence in their cases. So... Right. Oh, it, can still, actually, it can bolster the investigative investigative portion of the uh, uh, crime. Yeah, that's the, in, the, that's the entire purpose behind it, right? Yeah, is we want to find the evidence that supports their, like, investigation. Right. So, whatever, whatever their avenue of discovery is, you want to try and help them, fig- like, find the end result and piece the puzzle together. Yeah. And whether or not that's piecing it together in terms of who did it versus who didn't is also really important. So the other thing that I noticed with um, my research on this case was the resubmission of the trace DNA collected that was all excluded from her family. I don't know if you guys saw that while you were looking it up. I did. Yep. I, I did, did see I that, that actually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So forensics, not only, I mean, there were some also sticky situations surrounding whether or not uh, John Bonet's parents were involved in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but her family's DNA was excluded from the clothing that was resubmitted for, uh, DNA evidence. So, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, um, the other thing that I noticed that kind of caught my eye reading about this was when the initial, like, so they, you know, just she's missing and the cops show up and they're essentially looking around the house, or whatever, and they go to the basement and as we find out, she her body was in the basement behind whatever door there was. And mm-hmm. they didn't, in the initial search, they didn't go through said door to the basement to check it out. Like, why would you not look at yeah. every space inside that the house? That I overlooked. Real quick, so, I do want to clarify, Sean. So the um, family being excluded from that trace DNA is actually um, a, f- the term exclusion refers to Um, The fact that her family's known DNA samples were submitted Mm -hmm. with the victim's clothing. Okay. And they did not match the uh, sample that was found on her clothing. So that's what we mean by, like, 
it excluded her family from the the sample that was found on her clothing. They weren't excluded not from that the they whole thing. Right. Yeah. They were excluded just from this, like re redoing it here because we already had their DNA on file. Well, more so that the um, the profile that the unknown profile that they developed from right. her clothing didn't match to the family. Okay. So okay. it was compared. It just wasn't a match. And exclusion is the term that we use to okay, describe fair that. Enough. Fair enough. So, Kate, in your professional opinion, who did it? Uh, oh, man. I can't say. That's... <laughs> these, who did it, Kate? Not, who did it? I'm not going to be able to say who did it in any of these cases with no, maybe, yeah, no. maybe the exception of the information we've found on one of the other ones we're talking about later. There's... Oh. And... Yeah. We'll we'll talk about that when we get there, but... Okay. okay. Alright, yeah. Sean, who did it? Um, What's your favorite? The one-armed man. Yeah, naturally. I it's was going to go. I was going to go with the Slender Man. Ooh, Ooh the Slender. Yeah, man. yeah. I, I, I was, was going to go with that one. Basing this off no actual evidence, I still maintain that her family was involved. It, like, I, it, it seems to be the most reasonable. Yeah. Course, especially because they were a little difficult to pin down for initial invest, like initial statements and things like yeah. that. But there's a. There's a lot that we don't know. That's the that's the thing I find hard about um, re-examining true crime, true crime cases too. Is that since a lot of people fancy themselves uh, armchair experts, yeah, yeah, to, right. to drop another one of my favorite podcasts, um, <laughs> the information that's withheld from the media can be the stuff that's make or break to these cases. And the entire point of withholding that information from the media is so that, so investigators can do their jobs properly and try and find the right person. So. Oh, of course. Yeah. It obviously makes a ton of sense. And same thing with, um, you know, what we see on the news is not necessarily the entire story of, of all the, all the facts. Exactly. And we actually discussed this today uh, on the radio was the fact that when, when stories break, a lot of the initial details you get are wrong. Yeah. Or they're just, or they're and wrong. Sounds like they're feeding you something like intentionally. A lot of the time it's, they're still gathering details and things haven't been clarified. Yeah. And there are um, times that I've worked a case and then come back in for my shift the next morning. And it's entirely different who they originally thought was a suspect. Wasn't who we were actually looking for or the story that I heard about motive is entirely different. So it's gotcha. a rapidly changing uh, situation every time. So this one stays in the, we don't know file. We don't know. For me. Absolutely. Well, yeah. unfortunately I, I, never know. Probably. Most yeah. likely, but Hey, you know, you know what? There's always that 1% chance. Yeah, I guess. I, I There's always a 1% chance. Okay, <laughs> so let's move to this one. I want to save – I'm going to save the other one because I think that's one that people haven't really talked about. We're going to go middle middle ground here, and let's talk about a big a, – a huge uh, East Coast, West Coast battle. I was going to say big? Battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a segue too because we're yeah, yeah. Biggie and Tupac, of course. Uh, but this happened during all of our childhoods. Essentially, yeah. uh, the murder of Tupac and the murder of the notorious B.I.G. Kate, who did it? I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, this one, listen, based on my research here, it sounds like we actually have quite the conspiracy on who did it and yeah. uh, actual fingers pointed whether or not they saw justice for the crimes that they committed is another story but i think i think suge was was up to no good that's i think suge, every second suge breathes suge is up to no good <laughs> yeah that's that's kind of where i was going with it too i mean uh well you know puffy's puffy uh seems to have a hand in the case potentially as well um but it is crazy that they were both essentially murdered in a drive-by stopped at a stoplight. Yeah. Now, 
in a, in a scene like this, as opposed to a Jean Benet Ramsey, where you you know there's a body discovered, you have to check the scene and all that. Uh, like Biggie was shot. His bodyguard rushed him to the hospital. He didn't make it, unfortunately. Um, just in these situations where it's something like that, like in a situation where they've moved the body now, and mm-hmm. really there's not much left at the scene other than like I don't know, maybe there's blood and like shell casings or something. I mean, what what are you really looking for other than just kind of that obvious stuff? Um, really, that's where the investigative aspect of things takes over, which is why we have to work so closely with the detectives that we're um, on scene with. So both Biggie and Tupac's murders would have had cartridge cases or shell casings, like you said, um, which nowadays we have ballistics networks that we can run those cartridge cases through and correlate to other crimes in the area to come up with an investigative network of leads. Oh. Hmm. Um, so, I was, yeah, I was going to say, sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you off, Kate, just because this, no, okay. this, this is relevant in, so speaking, so Tupac killed in 96, Biggie, excuse me, Tupac killed in September of 96, Biggie killed in March of 97. In 96, do you know, as far as like with gunpowder analysis and all that, when you're, when you're talking about uh, shell casing analysis, was that a thing or very advanced back in, in that time frame? Not to my knowledge. Firearms isn't really my field of expertise. Sure, I'm more of a bloodstain girl. Um, so all about that I'd, splatter. Say that again. All about that blood spatter. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> So as far as I know, I don't think there was any like really big leaps and bounds in terms of analysis from that respect. Um, Potentially correlating the gun with a bullet that might've been recovered from either of them, but that's also dependent on whether or not the firearms themselves were recovered from those scenes. Right. Right. So you got to be able to have everything to compare the two, right? Yeah, you got to have right. something to uh, got to have something to look at <laughs> in the first place exactly. to, to, to bounce off of. Um, exactly. What I found interesting in my research, just specifically of the murder of Tupac. So uh, allegedly, uh, when Tupac was in the hospital, essentially bleeding out, um, they asked him and. Suge Knight if they did it and the quote is if I did I wouldn't tell you F you and that dude how does that not sound guilty (laughs) yeah I mean it's not a good look but when you're dealing with gang members a lot of times they're just not going to talk anyway right Right. And, and that's why you've got these situations where you never really know exactly who committed the crime who pulled the trigger because it's a it's a network of people um in terms of biggie it sounded like there was a very clear hitman situation which Mm -hmm. made it a little easier to uncover but uh at least based on the i think it's a new york post article that i was reading um but yeah it, it can be really tough and the thing so i actually started listening to um a podcast about this the east coast west coast beef and uh these two murders and what i found interesting and uh frankly the most relatable about this case from my point of view was the fact that uh these two guys tupac and biggie they both had uh really high hopes for their careers and uh, Biggie was raised in like a really nice, loving home. Tupac was going to school in Baltimore for poetry and theater. And somehow you end up involved in these gang situations and things spiral downhill because you get involved with the wrong people. Um, and that's a lot of what I've seen in the shooting cases that I've uh, attended. Yeah. So I feel like it's a no, it's kind it's of tough. a classic case of uh, sort of, Sort of in a, in a sense, wrong place, wrong time, but wrong wrong crowd, wrong time. Yeah, all all that like, yeah. Ugh. Well, in ninety and in ninety four, uh, Tupac was shot and he didn't die. 
Um, and I, somebody confessed to that later, and they said, I don't know if there were ever names thrown around about it, but, I mean, Pac always blamed Biggie and Puffy for that. Um, and the guy, later on, somebody confessed to shooting him in 94 and saying that he was paid to do it. I was going to say, isn't that, he was going into court for a sexual assault case at the time. I believe so, yeah. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. So, it's a, it's a whole messy situation uh, around all of them at that point. So my yeah. my theory is that they're both actually still alive underground, uh, and <laughs> and, no, and they 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 paid the uh, the vacuum guy uh, in Better Call Saul. The they, vacuum, and, yeah, they, they, dis- <laughs> they disappear. They have new identities. They're living in Alaska. I don't know, Joe. the The picture that the presenter in my high school dare program showed of Tupac sitting on his autopsy slab was pretty clear evidence to me that he's dead. Very. Oh, it was a body double, of course. <laughs> Obviously, that's just Hollywood. Obviously. That's just Hollywood. But it's a um, figure, right? Yes, exactly right. Madame Tussaud, they made it for him. Yeah. Um, by the way, just as a weird one-off here, did Dare keep anybody off of drugs? I don't think so. I don't think it did either. They encouraged it more, really. I kind of think so too. When you're told not to do something over and over and over as a kid, you're like, well, now I gotta try it. Yeah, I mean, kind of like you know, in Walk Hard, like I think I want to try some of that cocaine. I think you want to try some of that cocaine. It's it's almost as if they dared us. I'm gonna work in as many of these things as I can today. Listen, I was told by my husband, if I were to get aviator sunglasses to wear to work, I was contractually <laughs> obligated to make bad puns every scene I show up to. So I, to. I just pop in the background for you and just play that on a phone. Yeah, it was it was too much responsibility for me. I'm not that confident in my dad joke abilities. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, you could always, I mean, they make calendars you could get uh, from Amazon. Yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, that is a lot of, that's a lot of pressure, especially once you start doing it. Now you're the, now you're the joke lady. It's your thing. Yeah, it's your yeah thing. commit to the bit, right? I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I could commit to that. You know, like, I mean, shoot, let's, let's say you had, let's say you had a long afternoon the day before and you didn't get. Your, your donut and downtime now you're coming in the next day and you're you don't have that sugar in your system and you don't have a joke then what did you yeah just you expect me to be on point without my donuts okay well she backed it up so never mind <laughs> <laughs> i was like joe how dare you they don't all eat donuts and she's like oh, no. did you expect oh, no. me to be on Sean, point without my donut Sean, kate literally talked about going home and eating a donut and you're right and you're right settling her right. mind and adrenaline I know not right, only that, but I have also brought donuts and left them in my truck outside of the scene. <laughs> well, just in case you do a little in all day, and I was out at a bank robbery, and we were all hangry, hey. and I was about to leave, and they called me back to go find something, and I was like, I'm not coming back without food, and I I went back with a dozen donuts, and there were like five of us standing around this forensics car eating donuts. I think that's also that's also something that's also something I think gets overlooked a lot is that in these shows you know the the television shows a lot of time it's always some dramatized like uh death that they're investigating right Mm -hmm. um a lot of times you're not investigating a death like you said you're investigating a a bank robbery or something like that you know maybe nobody maybe nobody got hurt but you're still investigating it uh or maybe it's a disappearance or something yeah, disappearance ones are tough. Yeah, because you don't you don't necessarily know what you're looking for if the person is alive. And I have participated in a search for a disappearance that did not have positive results. And uh, yeah, it's it's tough because you're looking for anything and everything. You, There's you feel like you're grasping at straws. There's that old adage of of and I don't know exactly what it is, but something like after the first twenty four hours, forty eight hours, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, the the chances of finding the people alive go down dramatically. Is that yeah. something you guys genuinely believe? Um, that's tough for me to comment on because that's more from the investigative standpoint. Fair point. But, Fair point. Um, but in my experience, I would say yeah. Well, I think this is a perfect time uh, as a segue, speaking of disappearances, to come to our last case we wanted to talk about. 
And that is I'm glad you picked up on that. Yes, I did hear it. And that is the I'm the king of the segues. Uh, you the, are. You're great at them. I set you up and you knock them the down. The disappearance of Natalie Holloway in 2005. Yeah, this one I was actually like a real live adult person for. Yeah, all, I think all of yeah. us were pretty you know, much. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, 2005. So yeah, I was graduating high school myself. So yeah, uh, I mean, essentially. Uh, Natalie Holloway and essentially her senior senior class went on an unofficial trip to Aruba for five days. Uh, there was uh, six or seven chaperones, if I remember, that went with them, but they weren't like huddled over them all the time. They were just there in case anything, you know, they needed an adult supervisor, essentially. They, from my research, they met up with them in the morning and essentially took like a role and then they let them go do what they were going to do. But on the day that they were supposed to leave, Natalie was unable to be found. Yeah, that, uh, that always leaves it difficult for uh, forensics. And I'm not confident on the details surrounding um, what their initial scene search looked like for her since they didn't know where she went missing from right. or right, yeah. what analysis of her hotel room looked like and stuff like that. And it's a different but, country. Like, what are they, you know... Is, yeah, what, exactly. What are their, what are their um, yeah, so the things that I can comment on most um, that I found was that they ran into a lot of roadblocks with the physical evidence that they did find, um, in terms of uh, analyzing a sample that they believed to be blood that ended up not being blood. So you get those uh, results and they're kind of disheartening. You're hoping that's going to be the um, smoking gun, so to speak. Right. Um, or there was a piece of duct tape found with blonde hair that ended up not being hers at some point in the investigation. So it's tough finding things like that and thinking that it's going to be make or break and then it doesn't have the results. So that's tough. Yeah. And like you said, it's, 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 I mean, where do you even begin with a case where you don't necessarily yeah. know where they went missing from? Um, I think what was the last thing anybody saw of her? Wasn't it that surveillance tape so. of her yeah, leaving so the club with Vandersloot? Holloway was last seen by her classmates 1.30 a.m. on Monday, May 30th. She was leaving the Orangestad bar and nightclub with Jordan Vandersloot and his two uh, friends, Deepak Kalopi. Or, sorry, I'm probably butchering the name. Bless you for trying these and, names. Uh, <laughs> and Satish Kal 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 Kalpo. That's where we're going. Kalpo. Yeah. So <laughs> though that was the last known whereabouts is that she was with those three gentlemen's yeah i don't know i you, you don't have to call them gentlemen it's fine yeah I, I would not necessarily classify them as gentle by any stretch of the imagination Heads. no yeah there you go that's better <laughs> i think that's more accurate um i did read that um the netherlands air force actually deployed planes to look for clandestine grave sites which is cool because that's actually something that i have learned how to do well huh? um yeah i well, you gotta go into that i was gonna so, say you gotta explain that a little <laughs> so i attended a buried remains and excavation training course um fairly locally actually that uh teaches you how to look for um hidden graves basically how to look for depressions in the land or overgrowths in um, vegetation and things like that, how to excavate those sites systematically um, so that you don't alter any evidence and uncover things um, without damaging them. Right, so it was right. interesting to see that type of uh, search method deployed um, and that there were also cadaver do dogs deployed at uh i think it was the aruba racket club there was a tip that a gardener there had seen vandersloot being suspicious in, in the area so they deployed cadaver dogs and that is a very cool thing to watch a demonstration of um really i wouldn't have i wouldn't have pegged that for being 
like particularly interesting. So that same training that I went to, we had uh, a demonstration of those dogs and they laid out um, ethically sourced human remains. They oh, had no. they had bones, human bones that they planted um, along with uh, animal bones and the dogs can smell the difference. Oh, so wow. okay. you actually see like it's just watching the actual experiment and they like go and check stuff out and they're like, nope, that's not what I'm looking for. And they move on to the next spot. Um, it's really fascinating. And those dogs are so, so wired. It is incredible. Hmm. That's interesting. The I find it really interesting. They can tell the difference in the smell of bones. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, you so wouldn't, wild. You wouldn't think, but whatever difference there is in, I don't know if it's the proteins or like just general structure of human versus animal versus uh, non-remains things, right. yeah. like yeah. anything else that could be smelly and interesting to a dog. Right. Finely tuned. So that's really interesting to me. Uh, you might find this interesting, by the way, just a little aside. Uh, Texas right now is investigating cattle that has been turning up mutilated. Um, huh. They are extremely confused because the cattle are showing up with their tongues missing, with parts of their hide cut off, uh, mutilated in other ways. Uh, and the where the weirdest part for them is there's no signs of blood. There's no signs of a struggle. There's no tire tracks. There's no foot tracks. And the cattle body, the, the carcasses are sitting out for weeks because the, the vultures and the, the, you know, the, the creatures that would feed on carrion will not feed on them. Aliens. I mean, I think the only logical explanation is aliens. Yeah, aliens. Dude, that's a hundred percent where I went yeah. with it. <laughs> doing some experiments. For sure, but I just yeah. I just found that interesting when you were talking about the dogs being able to smell the difference. I'm just thinking to myself about that same story about clearly these animals could tell some I shouldn't touch that for some reason. Yeah, you know, and it's Ooh, just, I'm going to do some animals. digging on that. That sounds yeah. Funny. I thought you might find that interesting. Um, yeah. Kind of jumping back to disappearance cases and how you said it's very difficult. Not only where do you start and what do we cover and all that. Um, one sort of what they thought would be a break in this case of Natalie Holloway's disappearance. In 2010, tourists found a jawbone off the Arubian beach. Uh, mm -hmm. They tested it. It did. It was from a young woman, but it turned out it was not of, and they matched dental records, I guess, as well. And it was not Natalie Holloway's. Um, and I guess the other thing that I found, obviously when I say interesting, more so like how do they not pin, pin it on this guy too, but in, uh, in 2010, Jordan Vandersloot was, uh, excuse me, sorry. He pled guilty to the murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez from Lima, Peru. She disappeared in 2010 and was found three days later in her hotel, in the hotel room that was registered to Vandersloot. And he pled guilty to that murder in 2012. So I'm saying he's the guy that did it to Natalie as well. Yeah. How do you not pin you're it? This guy? You're, make, you're making a definitive statement? Yep. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I know who did it. <laughs> it was Jordan Vandersloot. There we no. go. I mean, it does, it, it certainly appears that way because the one thing I wonder, though, is that you plead guilty to that murder. I, do you, well, they can't hold that against you because that would be double jeopardy. Yeah, I was going to say, like, double jeopardy. I mean, he's. You've already been tried for it. If you've done it, why not come out and say it? Uh, less time in prison yeah. he got didn't he get something like almost 30 years or something joe 28 years is what i'm reading yeah yeah so if he was he theoretically could be out by the time he's 60 yeah, yeah i guess that's Let's true see. yeah you know? he was 17 in 2005 so in 2010 he would have been 22 well, he pled guilty in 2012 yeah i'm just yeah. saying i'm do. i'm just Following yeah. the calendar, so, yeah. Dang, my, my rough estimate was not as bad as I thought it was. Yeah, so. No, it was pretty good, actually. It was almost dead on. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, he's, he's what? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he still could have a few... That piece of could still have a few yeah. years uh, by the time he gets out. But um, Yeah, but realistically, always take the first deal. Right. Like, yeah. that's... I mean... That is not a joke when people say, like, always take the first deal. 
It is the best deal you're going to offer gonna, or get offered. It's not going to get any better, right? Uh, nope. Especially if you're guilty. Especially, yeah. Especially if you're guilty. Uh, so while Natalie Holloway's body was never found uh, in 2011, June 2011, her father, Dave Holloway, filed a petition with the Alabama courts to have his daughter declared legally dead. And they did sign off on that in January of 2020. Interestingly enough, his ex-wife, Natalie's mother, uh, opposed that. Correct, yeah. But they didn't so. officially uh, yes, order yes, it in did. Uh, January of 2012. So, uh, but yeah, um, just wild. Wild things um, in in true crime, and now I now I uh, I don't know if I could ever watch Dexter again. To be honest, now that you've told me some some of the you know, inside things, <laughs> Dexter's not as bad in terms of the science aspect of it, and I haven't watched it in a minute, so I would have to go back no. and double check. But the I ending, did... the ending still sucks. So there's that. Oh yeah, well I never finished it for that specific reason, <laughs> but. I will say I received training from the guy that Michael C. Hall shadowed when he did that show. And it's, it's a very interesting comparison. Like Michael C. Hall, I feel like picked up on some mannerisms that I noticed in this gentleman (laughs) that I was like, okay. He pulled, he pulled out. He's so messy. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was weird, but that was one of the coolest trainings I've gone to. So that's I mean, pretty cool. I feel like we can't let you go without asking you the question: Do you get to practice the blood split, blood spatter in the same way that Dexter would? You get to smash uh, a mannequin and see where the blood splatter blood goes. So I have not had the opportunity to do that for an actual case, but I have done it for practice. Nice. Okay. All right. Not it's not so like cool. an actual body or like a jello mold of a body or anything like yeah. that, but I have gotten like we have uh sterilized um I guess it's lamb's blood or sheep's blood or something that um we use that acts the same way that human blood does because the fluid dynamics of blood are different than that of water. So there's a, it's, it's thicker, right? So you want to make sure that the practice material you have reacts similarly to um, what you might see at a scene. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying there's a chance. A chance of what? I don't know. That you, that you get to, <laughs> I don't know. That you, you get to do it with, for a crime yeah, you scene. Get to do it for a crime scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I could. I'm not actually um, hoping that. I, that would be terrible. If you, if you guys watched The Staircase, documentary on netflix at all you will see why um i would not recommend conducting an experiment to try and figure out the results of what happened in a scene okay i would recommend strictly i would recommend strictly looking at whatever documentation and photos and measurements you have of what happened at the scene rather than trying to recreate what could have happened. Now, see, that's interesting because I was reading an article the other day about how they're using, you know, a, a information they gather at the scene and everything, but also using it with now that VR and, and what's called AR altered reality mm-hmm. is becoming uh, so much more of a thing. I was reading about some people using these case details to try and recreate scenes in altered reality. I don't know anything about using AR, but in terms of like current capabilities, part of what I do with Bloodstain is take all of the documentation. We use um, a laser scanner to collect measurements at any homicide scene. Um, So we can use all of the measurements from that laser scanner and put it into uh, computer software and recreate the scene and do like fly throughs and stuff so that we can show that in court if we need to, or um, I would think that there's got to be a way to convert that to VR so that somebody putting on a headset would be able to walk through the scene. Oh, that that would be pretty dope. I mean, we got to be there. We, I mean, Sean, you said, We're getting you, close, yeah, you, said you read the article. It's got to be, it's got to be. Gotta be and close. I mean, now let, let me clarify. The thing I was reading was like a private company that was working with retired detectives and people and trying to, to set something like this up. So it's not, I'm not saying that it's being used currently in investigation. Yeah. 
I can't imagine that any um, court would really advocate for putting a jury in a situation where they have to walk uh, through a crime scene. True. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because there's yeah. even situations where, like, some of our pictures won't necessarily, like, uh, prosecutors will choose pictures specifically that are non-inflammatory. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you kind of level the playing field a little bit. So if you have um, a sexual assault victim who had uh, photos taken during her exam, they're not necessarily going to go and show those pictures yeah. right off the bat to a jury because they're going to bring emotions out of people that um, – are are heightened but i guess even uh i think what might be a, a cool thing for the investigation process maybe even for something for what you do kate would be you have that 3d we're you know we're talking vr where you can step in and you're literally just recreating the whole entire scene where you could see it right instead of just looking yeah at, looking at your notes or trying to recreate it yeah. in your head where you can actually step in and and literally Make, yeah, make, being make able to physically scene. walk back through the scene wouldn't be wouldn't hurt the investigative aspect of things right. because it makes it a lot easier to think about the physicality of like where somebody would have been in space while these movements were taking place. Hmm. All right. Well, this took a this took a, uh, a like a left turn that I wasn't expecting, but I like this. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, awesome, Kate. Well. We've we've taken up a ton of your time on a day off, and we really appreciate you uh, popping in here and uh, talking about forensics and uh, these these cases from from growing up on our uh, guests growing up podcast. If, you, if you'd be willing to, we'd love to have you back in a, another time and be able to dive into like maybe an individual case or something like that uh, from history. Yeah, yeah, anytime. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. I like that. This was all, this might've been the most informative episode we've ever done. It's definitely <laughs> on the top of the list for actual informative information. I am always down to uh, break those misconceptions in my field. Fantastic. We are here for it for sure. Uh, so yeah, uh, we, we appreciate it and we'll, uh, we'll definitely have you back uh, and enjoy the rest of your day since it is your, your off day. Thanks guys. It was a pleasure. Thanks again, Kate. We'll talk to you soon. Today that we are recording is is Monday, but you're hearing this on a Friday. But again, today is Monday. And today is the song from our music today, our artist, hey. Bad Actor. The song is today. It's off of his brand new album called Stages that was released in 2022. And he actually just released an acoustic version of this song that you can find on all streaming platforms. You're just going to head over to his link tree. You can find him on all social media. Social medias if i can talk today at mm -hmm. b d c t o r so basically bad actor just not fully spelled out but i'm gonna put it all in the show notes so you guys don't even have to worry about it you guys can just pop down the show notes click on over and i got you i got you and as always i've been reading the bios of our musical breaks and i want to i want to read this one because it's it's enlightening, and we've had an enlightening episode. Bad Actor is a singer, songwriter, and producer whose soulful blend of indie pop and raw band elements make up his distinctive style. Raised in Brazil, the UK, and Germany, he came into contact with different styles of music at a young age. After studying music in Brighton, UK, Bad Actor found Yeah Yeah's music studios in Hackney, London, and later moved to Berlin. These roots continue to be the core of, or excuse me, sorry. These roots continue to be the core for the development of his songwriting. Infectious and captivating are words that describe the music of Bad Actor, who is sure to surprise with his upcoming releases. 2021, with the release of Around We Go, was the year the sound got its polish. The modern blend of 2000s indie bands like King Princess and Gene Dawson is the cosmos in which bad actor lives out. He himself says about the step to go public with his music quote, for years I hid in a basement and formed my sound the way I wanted it. It's time to get it out now. End quote. It's bad actor. The song is today and we're going to play it today on Monday. You're hearing it on Friday and uh, we will be leaving you with bad actor and today. So if there's no further ado, Sean, you got anything else? 
Uh, no, I think I'm good. Yeah, you are good, because you're going to play it loud, you're going to play it proud, and we're going to play it now. I only got my eyes on you, can't look away, I'm blinded, but I can't talk, it's fading away. Not too late 